0: But somehow they missed it. Because as we're going to read a few other different passages, um, you'd think that because of how many times Jesus told the disciples that this was going to happen, they would be ready and waiting at the empty tomb on the third day, ready to throw a party. They've got their marshmallow chickens ready. Um, someone is probably wearing a giant, terrifying bunny costume, like they're ready for the first Easter. But actually, what happened was the disciples were back in Jerusalem, hiding, and the only people that went. To the tomb were taking burial spices to cover up the stench of his rotting body and so jesus here rebukes them and so we're going to look back we're going to look back through the gospel of mark and we're going to see just how clear was this picture painted to them how non-obscure was this story um so find a way to, a few pages back mark chapter 8 in mark chapter 8 early on disciples are following jesus he's been teaching them he's been showing them Now, he's going to get them ready uh, for what's going to come. He's not going to let Easter be an obscure thing that takes them by surprise. He is going to make it as explicit as possible that this is the reality in which you live. And so in Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked who do you say i am peter answered you are the messiah so right jesus is saying you know other people are saying you know i might be a good teacher i might be a prophet but what do you think Uh, and they answer correctly it's the messiah the mashiach the one who is coming the one who is god's rescue plan for humanity to save creation and at this point they believe he's the messiah they answer that correctly one of the things that we talked about um, just a few days ago on good friday is that it appears that though they understood him to be the messiah they expected a little something different out of him right they knew he was there um, to rescue them to save them but most of them seemed to think that he was there to throw away the roman empire right to throw away the earthly bondage that was there and in some ways that's 100% what Jesus was doing, but what Jesus was going to do was so far outside of the boundaries of what they thought was going to be possible, that we're going to see, they miss it, so they recognize he's the Messiah, but then continuing on, verse 31, he began to teach them, okay, you've answered correctly, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to save you, he's going to tell them here is how it's going to happen began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again he spoke plainly about this it says in the gospel and peter took him aside and began to rebuke him so jesus spoke plainly about this Uh, many first century people expected the messiah Um, they expected the messiah however to do the killing not to be killed and so peter has a problem with this didn't like it. He rebuked him and in verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan! He said. Um, and this is probably like the top of the list of things you don't want to hear from Jesus. Um, this isn't like a cute little pet name. This is. He's saying literal Satan. Um, and why Jesus says this, he goes on. He says, "You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Right? You're not." picking up on what i'm saying you're not seeing the big picture next chapter chapter 9 starting verse 31 um these guys are still not getting it even though jesus spoke plainly about it and so here jesus had been teaching his disciples and he said to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men they will kill him and after three days he will rise but they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it so they're still confused Jesus is saying it again. He's hammering it home. And they're like, well, that can't really happen. Troubled by it, but unwilling to actually go to Jesus himself and get clarity. Next chapter, chapter 10 of Mark, verse 32. They were on, they, the disciples and Jesus, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. So now they're on their way. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. And now he is going to elaborate the exact way it happens and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, who will mock him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. Okay, that's scary. But what's the next line? What's going to happen? Three days later he will rise. Okay, so Jesus is driving this point home. Three times, he makes it explicitly clear to them. This is what's going to happen. It is going to be scary. It is going to look as if darkness is overtaking the kingdom of light. But three days later, I, the Son of Man, he says, is going to rise from the dead. Could Jesus be any more clear, right? This is not an obscure thing. So now, with that in mind... You can go back to Mark chapter 16. So Mark chapter 16 that we already read when he rebuked him. We've seen Jesus. He's as explicit as you can be. He said it three different times. So now we're getting to the point. Mark chapter 16. We just skipped Good Friday. Everything happened. Jesus was killed as a substitute for our sins. Saves the world. He dies just like he said. Everything happened the way that he said And the disciples are just ready, waiting for him to come back for the dead, right? Not exactly. You'd think that they're ready. You'd think that they would be, you know, having a watch party, ready for the big reveal, ready for something amazing to happen. But in verse 1, here is what was going on instead. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, who we think was probably jesus's mother and mary salome um, which we don't know a whole lot about her she might be john the apostle's mom but we do know that she made or invented a kind of lunch meat Um, they all brought spices so that they might go and anoint jesus's body Um, so these are female followers of jesus jesus own mother and they burned together after the sabbath here um, to anoint jesus for burial and so there was this jewish custom in which they would mourn for seven days and you'd sit on the floor of the house with family and friends and you'd mourn and lament and you'd release pain and then once per day you'd go out to the tomb and you'd mourn there Um, and in order to continue to mourn there for an entire week's time you don't want to do that in the presence of a rotting decomposing body and so they have all of these spices all of these different scents that they're going to anoint jesus's body with so that as they mourn him because they're expecting him to stay dead the smell won't be too bad. which means that these women despite Jesus, being very explicit, despite them being in close proximity to him, they don't seem to be expecting a resurrection, do they? They seem to be expecting to go to the tomb and to mourn, to anoint smell smelly body. They are there to say goodbye one last time to who they think might be just a dead prophet. Verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb because jesus was put in a rich man's tomb was a big cave area there would have been this huge stone put in place that would take three or four different people to push out of the way and they're worried about that but when they looked up they saw that the stone which was very large had been rolled away as they entered the tomb they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed matthew's gospel tells us it was an angel a messenger of god and he says don't be alarmed you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen! Exclamation point, he gives there. He said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He's gone. So these women, go to the tomb to mourn, and Jesus isn't there. The body is gone. He has been raised from the dead. Now just to clarify so that we're all on the same page, so that this could never be something that is misunderstood by common ground people, is that resurrection, while some people try to, I think, maybe over-spiritualize it, or make it a bit of a metaphor, in that day and age, resurrection only ever meant one thing. Um, It only ever meant that dead body was raised to life. I know people you know try to kind of spiritualize it make it a metaphor like you know going away to heaven or floating away or like you know grammy is an angel now or those different ideas that like well now his teaching lives on in our hearts that's not what resurrection meant resurrection only ever meant dead body corpse physical being raised to life now living walking around okay that's what resurrection meant and so the angel says he is risen it's not a parable it's not an obscure way of saying that like you know his teachings are good keep talking about it he's saying he's alive he is alive and we know that in luke and the gospel of john jesus shows that he is a physical body he says touch me i have flesh just like you do touch me and see for yourself so the angel tells them he is not here he's risen but he tells them in verse seven go and tell his disciples and peter that he is going ahead of you into galilee and there you will see him just as he told you so he's harkening back that okay you guys should know just like he said way back in mark chapter 8 and mark chapter 9 and mark chapter 10 you will see him everything is going according to plan this messenger is saying and then here this is where mark also points something out um, that isn't shared in the other gospel Where it says that trembling and bewildered, or some translations will say confused, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Like, why weren't they overjoyed? Why didn't they understand? Like, well, everything's going according to plan. They're not going to think we're spewing laeros. They're not going to think we're spewing nonsense because Jesus told them this would happen. But nonetheless, they were confused. Didn't seem to get it here. Verse 9 when jesus rose early on the first day of the week he appeared to mary magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons and so jesus appeared to her told her i'm back in the middle of that section and then she went and she told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping and when they heard that jesus was alive and she had seen him they did not believe and so what had happened is now mary has seen him in person not just an angel now she has seen jesus himself she goes to the disciples and she says i have seen the risen lord he is alive and we're not sure why they don't believe him Uh, maybe they're saying well you know mary like you were kind of demon possessed you're not the most stable person in the world Um, or you know it's you know talked about a lot how a woman's testimony wasn't held up in court and so maybe they didn't respect her because of that Um, but i would argue that i don't think it was just because of the messenger here that they didn't believe it i think the resurrection was something that was just so incredible so amazing that even though the disciples had to be told multiple times even though now they're having the testimony of a friend who has seen him they still can't believe it they still don't believe her so then we get to verse 12 that we already read earlier where afterward jesus appeared in a different form to two of them um, while we were walking in the while they were walking in the country right this is the road to emmaus here So now Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, those followers of his, and they returned and they reported it to the rest. But the rest, they didn't believe those two either, Mark's Gospel says. So you know the story of the road to Emmaus. They said, didn't our hearts burn inside of us? And he explained everything to us. They went back. They told the disciples. They did not believe them either. So I don't know if anyone has been counting, keeping track of how many different times jesus made it really explicit that he's going to come back and now he is back and he's alive but there's a reason then in verse 14 when now later jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen right and so in mark's gospel he shows up he rebukes them he says i have told you plainly and clearly what's going to happen i have sent friends trusted people to tell you that i'm alive and you still don't believe what more could you be looking for what more could you be expecting jesus said it plainly and i know that the resurrection is such an incredible amazing thing That it really does mean that we don't just have a hope for the future, that we have a hope now that Jesus has pulled the kingdom of heaven and the age to come into our current world, in which we don't have to wait to live according to the kingdom of heaven. We don't have to wait to live according to resurrection principles until we die. But actually, we can live that way now. This is the reality we live in now. But nonetheless, it's not always seen. Still not seen. It is amazing, but it seems pretty clear. And I know many of you holy spirit has he's opened your eyes to see that this is the reality that we live in this is what is taking place jesus is alive this is the water we swim in That though the world appears to be covered in sin death sickness and all these different things that jesus is alive and we don't have to fear death and live according to that we don't have to hold grudges against those who hurt us because we have been forgiven and so we can forgive seven times seventy times we don't have to wait for the future to have a hope of healing and of god's presence with us we have it now this is big but this is the water we swim in now and my hope today is that all of you would see very clearly this isn't just something for the future jesus told us over and over again he sent his disciples he appeared to them and told them Many of you have had similar experiences. You've read over and over again that this is the reality. Jesus is risen from the dead. You've had loved ones. You've had people in your life tell you this explicitly. They seem to have seen Jesus, and they tell you he's risen from the dead. And there might still be that nagging bit of not wanting to believe. And this might not be the most happy-pappy message, but Jesus is saying he's rebuking us for this, for not believing in this. And I think this applies to those of us who do follow Jesus and believe in him as well, to say, even if you do believe, even if you can mentally and, and, and ascend to the reality that he is alive, are you living into that reality? Are you living as if death has been defeated, Jesus is alive, he is ruling and reigning, and we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear people referring to what we're speaking as So We don't have to fear all these different things that the world promises will happen if your behavior of a plus b equals this we can live knowing that a dead corpse was raised from the dead jesus himself conquered death and that changes everything that changes everything and so the resurrection easter gives us new eyes to see everything see all of reality this this is the water that we swim in this is kind of the crazy challenge of being a follower of jesus It's that though most go through this life having no understanding of what's going on, we see very clearly Jesus is alive. He's ruling and reigning. We don't have to wait for the future to live according to those heavenly principles. That by the resurrection of Jesus, we can follow him now in this world. And I think that's good news. I think that's good news. So we live in the light of the resurrection. So let's pray. And we'll continue on
1: in worship. Father
0: God, uh, we just thank you for opening our eyes to help us see the reality in which we live, that you are alive, you are ruling and reigning. I just pray that you would remind us of that basic fundamental truth this morning. That this morning, as we just celebrate the fact that you're alive, would we be a people just so aware? with us, so aware of how creation has been changed already, though you have not renewed all things in the way that you've promised, at the culmination of time, we know that it doesn't matter to us, that we live according to that hope today. So Jesus, we love you. you continue to open eyes? Open eyes to see you more clearly, and open eyes in here. We don't yet see it. Would this be a chance for us to realize wow, what is water what an amazing thing that we did so Jesus, um, our only response now is to turn to you in praise so we love you, it's in your name that we pray Amen. so if you can please stand as we continue in worship
2: Jesus, we praise you for
0: just the goodness that you have given us, for all the blessings that you've poured out on us, um, starting with the cross and on. Just we praise you and thank you so much for all you've done.
3: In Jesus' name.
1: Thank you. You may be seated. All right, I'll give you
3: guys around here. So everybody's going, Wow, that was the fastest sermon ever Evan ever preached. We're gonna be out of here so early. He didn't tell you there was two parts, did he? <laughs> but wait, there's more. So those disciples, those apostles, how about those guys? So ladies, let me ask you a question. I've got to testify here for a moment, because my wife will send me to the refrigerator, you know, for something as simple as mundane as a bottle of ketchup or something like that, right? And uh, ladies, do do any of your husbands do this too? You know, I go down there, and I open up the refrigerator, and I stand there, and I scan, and I look around, and up and down, and everywhere. I even open the vegetable door, you know, and I go hey, there's no ketchup in the refrigerator. And I can hear her exasperated, gusty sigh as she gets up from the couch and down the stairs and she walks right up to the refrigerator, opens the door, points at the bottle of ketchup that was probably this far from me and says, what is wrong with you? has that happened to anybody else okay all right there's yeah there's a few guys that are testifying there's a few women that are pointing at me. <laughs> yeah what is wrong with us i mean we think we got things all figured out and then it turns out well we don't well those are the apostles okay they really thought they had things figured out they really thought they understood what jesus was saying but uh, they were right in the middle of things and they really couldn't see what they were looking at Uh, this is something that I've learned to do because I've heard my wife say what is wrong with you so many times it's not just ketchup it's pretty much anything she sends me to look for I've learned to open up the refrigerator door and back up as far as I can and get a full view of everything and then I'll go oh look there it is right there kind of thing ever heard that old statement can't see the forest for the trees Okay that's we are sometimes obscured in our vision because we're we're standing in the in the midst of the trees but we really can't see the forest it's not till we back up a little bit that we can actually see the forest we have to step back and you know really we have the advantage as Jesus disciples 2000 years after the resurrection we have stepped back a long ways from what the disciples were standing right in the middle of, and it made it so hard for them to to understand. So uh, I want to take a look at the Apostle Paul, who was one of the last of the Apostles to see the risen Jesus. Uh, you know, you look at uh, at what happened, and these guys, I mean, Peter, and you know, there, how many times did Jesus probably want to say, other than get behind me, Satan, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know? But sometime after the resurrection, it's like they got their act together. The Holy Spirit came and filled them up, and, and suddenly they are transformed. They are different people from from someone who didn't kind of... Know well, what to do with Jesus to suddenly there on fire and turning the world upside down. What made that difference? The resurrection. It was exactly that. And I think it's Paul who best teaches us and also best exemplifies that transition. So let's pray again and then we're going to look at the scripture. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you now,
1: we come to ask you to do this open our eyes that we might see open our ears that we might hear open our hearts that we might believe like we would never believed before
3: lord open our hands that we might do something with what you have given to us lord we pray now that your spirit would be alive and well in each and every one of us and in your living word and we pray this in jesus name amen so paul says this in first corinthians 13 love is patiently you know, he says all this stuff about love right but tucked away in first corinthians 13 verse 12 is is this statement that i think is just kind of a a, a catchphrase you might say for now right now in the middle of everything We see in a mirror dimly. Okay, now it's just a way of saying, kind of poetically, uh, right now we don't see so well. But then, at another time, face to face, he says, Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, or know fully, even as I have been fully known. So you see what Paul's saying from between now and then. There's there's a big change that occurs. Uh, in the now, there's kind of obscurity, but in the then, there is clarity. Clarity. You see, it was the apostle Paul who penned those words, and it was the apostle Paul uh, that we should look at now, because he was the one who saw the risen Christ so clearly <laughs> that that's all he saw for three days. You know the story out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to Damascus. He's hunting Christians. Not because he wants to join them. He wants to eliminate them. He wants to get rid of these guys. No more of this Jesus is the Messiah stuff. Let's end this. So on the way to Damascus, and we know from Paul's own testimony in Acts chapter 22 that it was at noon, the brightest time of the day, in the clearest light of day, a light from heaven... Shone around him, and the risen Jesus Christ spoke to the Pharisee Saul, Why are you persecuting me? <laughs> Who are you, Lord? I'm persecuting I am Christ, the Son of the Living God. That was the transition moment for the Apostle Paul. I remember when I was a kid, see, now I'm old enough to remember uh, the flash cubes on top of cameras, back when they used film to take pictures, you had to develop and everything like that, and there's a few of you nodding, and, yeah, and the little flash cube would go and it would turn so you could use it like four times kind of thing. And I was a little kid, you know, Christmas time, Easter, whatever it was, and you know, we'd always have to line up in our fancy duds, and, and parents would take a picture of us, and pff, that, that flash would go off and uh, you know when you see a really bright light like that then you see this little kind of purplish green cube floating around okay you know as a child of six or so you know i'm trying to catch that thing you know what the after image right have you ever thought about this that that, that paul, at, at the paul in the noonday sun saw christ and that's all he could see for three days the after image of jesus until ananias went to him at christ's beckoning to give him his sight back and something like scales fell from paul's eyes here's a guy that saw the resurrected jesus way more clearly than peter mary Magdalene, mark and all the rest were seeing him because he stepped back a little ways from this in first corinthians chapter 15 Paul has a lot to say about the resurrection. And, and and he talks about all these different appearances that were made. And, and I'm going to begin in verse uh, verse uh, uh, 3, I think, with this. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the Scriptures? You see, that's the advantage we have. We have the Scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole counsel of God. And so, when we look at the resurrection, we kind of we're kind of in the forest, looking at the whole thing, you know. And 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 Paul's just stating what you know what the Scriptures had already been saying. And then in verse five, he says, and and he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred at one time, most of whom are still alive son fallen asleep then he appeared to james and to all the apostles so he's just going boom 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 here's all the appearances you, know, you cannot argue with the resurrection it's the most documented historical event that we ever had uh, it's not just documented by the writers of scripture it's also documented by secular historians there's no doubt that jesus was alive jesus died and jesus was alive again no doubt whatsoever in fact there's so much evidence in support of the resurrection that it's turned at least three famous atheists into christians three famous atheists who had a goal their goal is i'm going to disprove this resurrection once and for all because if i can wipe out the resurrection i wipe out the whole of christianity josh mcdowell c.s lewis and I just lost in my head because I didn't write down my notes the third guy. But it wasn't that crying baby. <laughs> they, they, they all set out to say, all right, I'm going to line up the evidence and show that there's no way that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And as they, as they went after that pursuit, they realized there's too much evidence for the resurrection. I would be a fool to not believe it. Now, C.S. Lewis basically says he came in the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. <laughs> because he preferred to be an atheist. But he said, I can't argue with the light of the resurrection. And so here's all these appearances. So so Paul doesn't have any doubts about the resurrection. I mean, that's what he taught so strongly in almost every single one of his epistles. He says he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and then verse 8. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul had a resurrection experience with Jesus. Now, do we have anybody here that has goals? Anybody that has a, has a goal? Okay, hang on a second. little man on the street interview. <laughs> hey, Daniel Crossman, uh, what's your goal? Uh, to keep my child alive. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good goal. From what I know of uh, Crossman's, that's gonna be a challenging goal. Surprised you guys are even alive. All right, anybody else have a goal? Oh look, suddenly nobody has goals because I'm down here with a microphone. Come on, who has a goal? Who's a goal
1: that you can share.
3: Yes, back to this lovely lady in the rear here. Hello, remember. <laughs> to teach my husband how to look in the refrigerator and find things. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I should have seen I should have seen that like the ketchup bottle. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I, I just need one more goal. Who's got a serious goal? A real live goal? Okay, just a sec here. My goal is to not fall on those steps. Yes, sir. To start a family. Start a family. Is that a good goal? That is a great goal. That's a fantastic goal. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so those are all good goals. Okay. Paul had some goals. Do you know that? At least the apostle, or I should say the Pharisee Saul had some goals. Let's go to Philippians chapter three, because I think it's in Philippians chapter three where we really see Paul nailing down the significance of the resurrection. And, and, and in fact, the whole book, you know, what's, what's the one word that is descriptive of the book of Philippians? Can anybody think of that? Okay, I had to look over my, my pastor buddy there. <laughs> joy. <laughs> okay, yeah, and a lot of you I see, you all said joy. And so we think it's really about joy, but really, why is, it, why is there joy? How can Paul even talk about joy, especially with the fact he's, he's suffering in prison, what, what is it that makes him capable of, of, of saying these things? Well, I, I'm going to propose that the book of Philippians is really about the resurrection. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3, look at verses 4 through 6, and here are some of Paul's early goals, okay? Uh, they talked about a lot of people who put confidence in the flesh, and then he goes on to say, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> I love that Paul said that. Circumcised on the, and here he gives, he gives his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, okay, it was all about keeping the rules, Blameless. See, there's Paul revealing his early goals. I was going to be the best. You know, I I was going to probably at some point lead the Sanhedrin. I was going to be that guy. I had all my ducks in a row. I had it all figured out. But then as we read on in verses 7 through 11, uh, we see that the resurrection changed. Paul's goals, and here's, here's his changed goals. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, Jesus, as my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish. I can't give you the, the Greek word because we're in polite company here, but we have really tamed it down to rubbish or dung. But but this is what Paul is saying about his old goals. He says, these old goals are nothing compared to what Christ has to offer me. In order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then look at verse 10, because here we see Paul's new goals that i may know him and the power of his resurrection now again paul didn't have any doubt about the resurrection whatsoever but what he's saying here is i really want to know it i want to walk in that we just sang a song about the power of christ in us and that's the power that he says i want to realize that and then a the second goal that i may share in his sufferings and then his third goal becoming like him in his death That by any means possible i might attain to the resurrection of the dead okay and and, and again what paul's basically saying there that i you know that i might any means possibly say so it would result so that the result would be that i would walk right in out of this life into the life that jesus christ died and rose again to give me so many people actually have kind of a dim view because that's what paul said now we see dimly many people have kind of a dim view of the resurrection of jesus you know basically you know a lot of people when we talk about the resurrection it's kind of like this Uh,
1: well we'll live forever good we don't have to fear death yeah no no worries about death
3: good jesus is king (laughs) you know and we think we got it all figured out but really jesus is probably looking at us most of the time saying what my wife says to me. You know, I really hope deep down inside that that when I enter in to the presence of Jesus, the the words that will be said will be,
1: well done, thou good and faithful servant.
3: But I think if I were to step into his presence today, it would
1: probably be, what's the matter with you? Because we don't have it all figured out. I don't think we know what to do with we live forever we don't have to be afraid of death jesus is king resurrection proves it but i think what paul's
3: doing in philippians chapter 3 is he's giving us a clue this is what you do because jesus has raised from the dead and here's number one knowing jesus What do we do with this resurrection life that Jesus has given to us? Well, top priority over all things, number one goal in our lives should be to know Jesus and to be made and and to be known by him. That's it. And whenever the Bible talks about somebody in relationship knowing another person, it's talking about knowing someone to the fullest extent that they can be known. Let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus that way? Do you know him to the fullest extent that he can possibly be known? And I would surmise that we would all be liars if anybody said, Oh, i I got it figured out. No, there's something wrong with us. We have the rest of this mortal life to engage in knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, to know him as deeply and as intimately as we possibly can are you doing that are you chasing jesus that hard that everything else in life is overshadowed by that desire to know him and the power of his resurrection howie Hendricks was a professor at dallas theological seminary and uh, he wrote a story once That was heartbreaking for him he talked about one of his favorite students and a student was graduating with a degree out of out of this uh, seminary and uh, and the student had wrote a letter to him and said uh, dr. Hendricks
1: this school has taught me to love the Bible but I fear as I graduate
3: dr. Hendricks and I love the Bible more than I love Jesus. Whew, what a wake-up call. <laughs> because that can happen to any one of us. We can pursue so hard after a good thing that we've neglected the essential thing, the right thing. Oh, how easy it would be for me to stand here and tell you that in ministry, there have been many times when I lost sight of Jesus because I was so in love with ministry one of my best and truest friends walked away from his wife walked away from his marriage and walked away from the church and walked away from jesus and everybody was like how could that happen john was just crazy about jesus and i thought to myself no i don't
1: think so otherwise he'd still be here john was more in love with christianity than he was jesus
3: And when Christianity failed him, which it inevitably will do all of us, it's so easy to just walk away. But I'll tell you what, when Jesus is your passion, when Jesus is the lover of your soul, the lover of your life, Jesus is the one and only. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Paul wrote that one, by the way, too. Second thing, Paul wanted to share in Jesus' sufferings. Now, we Westerners, in all of our comfort and convenience and everything, when we hear suffering, we kind of, well, you know, clinch up just a little bit about that, because nobody likes suffering. Now, can I just tell you something about suffering that hopefully you, you know, but
1: maybe need to be reminded of? It's inevitable. You can't dodge it. Suffering happens.
3: And and when suffering comes our way, it's totally unrealistic to say, well, I wish this wasn't happening, because it's going to happen. I wish I had something brighter and cheerier to tell you, but but this is the the God's own truth. You and I, we're going to suffer through this life. Because, you see, there's a reason Jesus came to the cross. And did what he did there on Friday. And there's a reason that he rose from the grave, and that was to set us free from the curse. And the day has not yet come, like we read in Revelation 21, and there shall no longer be any curse. The day has not come yet when every sorrow and every tear has been wiped away. So you want to know what the best thing we could do right now with the knowledge of the resurrection along with knowing Christ as fully as we can know him? And that is to walk into
1: suffering the way that Jesus walked into it. To suffer like Jesus did. You see, when when
3: Jesus said that if anyone would follow after him, you would have to deny yourself. You would have to take up a cross and then follow him. That's what Jesus was calling us to. If you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that one of his most uh, famous statements was, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Paul said it over and over and over again throughout every single one of his epistles. I crucify the flesh. I slay myself daily. You know, and this daily dying is is what we're called to as Christians because of the resurrection. And we don't have to fear this daily dying because of the resurrection. When we take up our cross, we identify with Christ through our suffering, knowing that, as Paul again wrote, in both romans and first corinthians or second corinthians knowing that these light and momentary afflictions that's what paul calls the deepest of our sufferings in this lifetime light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the weight of glory in the age to come you see the resurrection should put things in perspective for us to say that whatever i'm suffering today is nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has risen to give me to allow us to walk into and to experience when we walk into suffering like Jesus did you see we're putting to death our own temporal agendas so that we might fully pursue the kingdom of God Let me say that again because I need to hear that myself. When I embrace suffering the way that Jesus Christ embraced suffering, I am putting to death my temporal agendas so that I can fully pursue the kingdom of God. You see, it's when we die to ourselves that we truly do live.
1: And and, and I would probably... Take a guess that a lot of Christians are just walking under the shadow of death. And
3: and they're they're not living fully yet because they're they're clinging to this temporal
1: life or their temporal agendas rather than just slaying themselves today, taking up the cross of Christ, knowing him, and knowing
3: his death and sharing in his sufferings and then Paul's sticking with this scene when he goes to his third goal and has to become like Jesus in his death so when Jesus prayed the night before his crucifixion he said father take this cup
1: away from me right you don't see Jesus going oh death, la de da no big deal but there's one thing
3: Jesus wanted the night before the cross it was a way out a different way, a different, a different means by which uh, his father's plan since the beginning of the foundations of this earth, even before the foundations of this earth, could, could somehow be fulfilled. So that's why Jesus said, but not what I want, what you want. And what Jesus was demonstrating to us there was full-on devotion and dedication to his father's will. And that's what the resurrection should do for me and for you. To bring us to a point where we'll say, you know what? Jesus, you can have it all,
1: no matter what. I want to share in your sufferings. I want to know you, and I want to become
3: like you, even in your death. You see, Paul so intimately wanted to know Jesus and to follow him that Paul was willing to lay down his life for the sake of others. And laying down his life exemplified his willingness to follow Jesus wherever Jesus might lead, even if it were
1: into the valley of the shadow of death. And that's why, when Paul talked about things like death,
3: suffering, the ultimate giving oneself over to Jesus Christ, he could encapsulate it with that three-letter word, joy.
1: Can you imagine when Paul found out that he was going to be put in chains, his reaction to
3: it was probably something like this. woo Awesome! And Silas was probably like, what is wrong with you? And Paul was like, don't you realize, Silas, all I want to do is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now that I'm going to be put under Roman guard for 24 hours at a time, two Romans attached to me for six-hour shifts. That means i got got, do the math real quick, uh, i got about eight Romans that I get to tell Jesus, to talk to them about Jesus, and these guys aren't just your typical Romans, these are the praetorian gods, Silas, these are the guys that are part of Caesar's household. Do you realize what an opportunity God has just given
1: to us for his kingdom? Now, if I were to look at Paul and say, what is wrong with you? Something's wrong with me. Because that should be every Christian's heart. That even suffering is the opportunity
3: to share Christ with others. You see, instead of bemoaning the fact, oh, to go through this we should be going you know what god has probably given me an opportunity through this to share my faith with somebody when i wrecked my bicycle and blew up my right collarbone for the second time the guy who repaired it the first time <laughs> had to repair it the second time and then for the surgery he said i gotta tell you i didn't know what i was gonna do he says there were just bone fragments past the first plate everywhere. I didn't know how I was going to put that back together. He said, but, you know, when we, when we, when we put the titanium uh, plate in there, he says, the bones just, they, they just came together. He, he said, it was, it was almost like they, they wanted to be together.
1: And I said, well, you know, I had a lot of people praying for the surgery. He, he went,
3: Huh. Yeah, that's all. Huh. But wrecking my bike and blowing up my collarbone was an opportunity to tell this, this fantastic surgeon who, who's suffering himself right now to, to, to at least just point him towards God somehow. And that's all we're supposed to do for the rest of our lives is just point towards God. That's why the resurrection happened, to enable us to be able to do that.
1: That's what Jesus did his entire life. As you continue reading through Philippians
3: chapter 3, and I would encourage you to do that, Paul basically goes on to say, not like I have this all figured out, but one thing I do is I press on. I just keep going, and I just keep going until I finally attain what Christ has laid hold of me for.
1: That's what the resurrection should do for all of us
3: as believers in Christ. To say, I haven't figured it out, but this thing I'll do is I'll just keep pressing on and pressing on until we get there. So what should we do now? Okay, I'll give you three things real quick here. Based on what Paul said, I think, based on the fact that we're celebrating the resurrection today, that if we're truly celebrating that, we should seek to grow in our love for Jesus. We should right now make a decision where we're sitting, Right, make our heart an altar and say, God, today I'm going to start pursuing you even more than I've ever pursued you. And I don't want to fall in love with the things about you. I want to fall in love with you. God, I want you to captivate my heart and hold my heart. I want you to be the only thing that my heart truly, truly, truly loves because I can't love anybody or anything else until I first do that. The second thing, I think, is we should endure whatever suffering we're going through, because remember, it's going to happen. But I'm going to say it this way. We should endure suffering with a totally unworldly attitude. Not the kind of suffering that says, bring it on, I'm a martyr," But the kind, of, the kind of attitude that says, this isn't a problem. This is an opportunity. For God to work, a a chance for, for me to actually be a witness for him. To say, I won't run away from it, but instead I'll run into it because it's there that God's grace is sufficient. It's there where his grace works best. And then the third
1: thing I think we should do, if we're gonna follow Christ, become like Jesus in his death. Well, what was Jesus doing when he died? He was loving you. So I think that what we should do because of the resurrection is we should love others by laying our lives down for them. That's what
3: Jesus said. No greater love is there than to lay your life down for a friend. That's why Paul said things like, I'm pouring out my life like a drink offering. So, because of the resurrection that 's what you and I could do today Its just pour our lives out for the good of others, for the sake of others. Let me close with this statement, based on the example of Jesus and the example of Paul, who so desperately wanted to know Jesus, that any person who spent his entire the entirety of his or her life by loving others, seeking the good of others, no matter what The personal cost is a person who has not wasted a single moment of their life. I don't want to waste the resurrection that Jesus has promised us. Until we stand in glory, let's fill every moment of our life by just loving Jesus with everything that we've got, loving our neighbors as
1: ourselves.